0: I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest today is Steve Kilby, singer-songwriter and bass player for the Australian band The Church. The journalist and writer Glenn A. Baker wrote that from the release of She Never Said, their first single in November 1980, this unique Sydney-originated entity has pervaded a distinctive, ethereal, psychedelic tinge sound. The Los Angeles Times has described the band's music as dense, shimmering, exquisite guitar pop. Steve has amassed a prolific body of work. I believe the church album count is now at 25, around 30 solo and collaborative albums as well, and a published author with three books. The band have gone through a few personnel changes over the years, with various members coming and going, coming and going again. And today's lineup finds Steve up front, as always, and at the time of this conversation, touring the U.S. with their new album, The Hypnagogue. Steve, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me from San Francisco, where you're performing tonight.
1: I'm in San Francisco on a very rainy and cold day.
0: Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles, and it's uh, a little rainy and cold here as well. You know, through your work with the church and a whole heap of solo and side projects, I believe you now have over 1,000 original songs registered with the Australian Copyright Agency. Is that right? I do, yeah. I do. I read in an interview you gave a few years ago about this uh, very prolific body of musical work, where you said, just because I've written that many songs doesn't mean anything. Imagine if you were having an operation on your brain and a 60-year-old surgeon walked into the theatre. You would think, I'm in safe hands. He's been doing this all his life and he's very good at it. You said, I think I've become very good at pulling lyrics and melodies out of the air. How do you write? I just can
1: and I know I can and I always do and I I just get in the situation for it and um, usually um, when I'm making a record I, I go in there in the morning and I say pull up the song I'm going to sing and I smoke a joint and I have a listen and the words and the music it's just what I do it's like you know when you see someone standing on a golf course and they know how hard to hit that little ball to make it go in the hole or somebody else standing there surveying a street and they know where to put the traffic light another guy turns up your car's broken down you can't figure out what's wrong with it hasn't been going the guy turns up and he goes oh it's your alternator it's just sort of what i now do is he's like i just sort of write songs i spend all my days thinking about music and words and i always have for ever since you know i was 11. are you disciplined do you schedule hours My muse is the most undisciplined thing there is and it can strike at any time. Um, I remember when we were making um, our Starfish album and a lot of the songs didn't have any words and the guy was going, where are the words? I was saying, I don't know. And he was saying, what are you going to do? Are you just going to make them up? And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. I just fucking make it up. I don't like discipline. I I I never have uh, a... Just whenever I need to write, I can write. You know, it's it's like you don't question it. It's like the goose that laid the golden egg. You just let it be. You don't question it. You know, it's always there on tap. And you sort of give it a little bit of respect. And um, i got to say, I don't try this at home, kids. Marijuana has always helped me. Uh, Marijuana helps me unlock what I'm looking for in music. doesn't work for everyone. Probably bad for your lungs and if you're pregnant. But for me as just a songwriter, a joint always goes a long way. I can live without almost anything else. If I'm going to make music, if I'm going to play a show, if I'm going to write a song, if I'm going to write an article, if I'm going to do something where I have to pull something out of the universe, give me a fucking joint and I'll do it. Without a joint, it's going to be a lot harder going. I don't know why that is. Uh, And... um. It's just, it's just, it's just frees things up, makes my mind sort of start communicating with itself a lot better.
0: Yeah, fair enough. You know, I, I didn't know until researching for our conversation today that uh, you were actually born in the UK, but emigrated with your family uh, at the age of five to Australia, growing up around yeah. around Wollongong and Canberra. Do you, do you have any memory of, of that time?
1: I was a little bit younger than you think. I was three. And I I don't think it was so traumatic because I was three, I think been five and gone to school in England and then suddenly rolled up and gone to school in Australia. It might've been a bit more of a, like a culture shock, but, um, I was only three when we turned up. So going to school was a culture shock for me without having to be another country involved. Just the very idea. I remember my mother dropping me off that first day and I'm, I'm crying my eyes out. And she's saying, stop You're crying, you big baby. I'll go, oh, I don't want to. And then going in there and got I got into trouble the first thing I did. And boy, I'm glad none of that happened. In another con- you know, like in another country, like I'm glad I was sort of at least relatively used to live, living in Australia by then.
0: Right, right, right. And at least
1: you could speak speak the language. Can you imagine... At any school I went to at any given time, there were always tons of kids who couldn't speak the language. And kids were teaching them stupid work, you know, like, uh, you know, teaching them the wrong words for things. <laughs> it's like going to school is a really hard and tough thing. Going to school on that first day, much tougher than walking on at some fucking big festival playing to 100,000 people. Much tougher, believe me. What kind of kid were you? I was just an average kid. little little skinny nothing, Um, nothing, just nothing to write home about at all. Uh, I would have, if you'd walked in the class, I would have blended in with all the others. Nothing extraordinary there at all. When
0: did the guitar enter your life?
1: My dad was, my dad was very kind. He was a musician himself. He said, I think music is the way to go. Um, So I started calling him out on that. And, And when I was 11, there was this package tour coming out. And I had all of Australia's biggest band, but particularly my favourite biggest band, were called the Easy Beats. And um, I went along and saw that. I saw the colours of the guitars. I saw the shiny drum kit. I heard the noise it was making. I saw the singer prancing around in his bell bottoms. I saw the girls screaming and having orgasms. And quite frankly, I just sat there and went, "You know what? <laughs> That's for me. Good job for me to get into." Yeah. Why a bass? Something just said to me, you should play bass. Um, um, The more I thought about it, the more bass seemed to be for me. I don't know. There was no real reason behind it. Just it sort of, it seemed like bass was the thing. And then when I was 16, I nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged. And he finally bought, my father bought me a a, a Paul McCartney violin bass copy. There was a copy of the one that, he pl- that Paul McCartney played, mm. a cha- Japanese one. And then somehow he got a school PA from somewhere and rigged up a kind of a bass amp for me, which made a terrible noise. And then he actually went out and bought me a proper bass amp, a great big fucking bass amp. And then I'd have six other kids hanging out of my bass amps at all these inputs. So there'd be me playing bass and sort of five other kids playing guitars because they could all plug into it. And then as I was saying, eventually I became a singer. So then I needed a PA and then I needed a microphone and microphones and then a desk and speakers and amplifiers. And then I needed a station wagon to drive all this stuff around in. So I I ended up costing my dad a lot. He would just go guarantor on my loans. (laughs) So... I don't know. I can't remember what happened with all that in the end. I guess I paid it all off. He, he kept having to go. It was one thing. One thing just eternally led to another with music and he go, I just bought you something. I go, yeah, but now I need a blah, blah, blah. And he he'd go, all right. I mean, he, he knew all the people in the music shop and everything. When he
0: came in, the guy, the guy would sort of butter him up. Oh, this guy's going to buy something. Yeah, Definitely. So when you were playing out in those early days, obviously in, in, in different bands and, and gigging and, and demoing, what was what was your first band? Look,
1: I um I joined an awful band. I joined a band when I was 17. I saw an ad in the paper and it said, um, "Band with work need bass player," and I so sort of went down there. I, they were playing all these kind of standard numbers. They were they were called a 50-50 band, and they were playing 50 percent what was ever on the top 40 and 50% sort of older stuff. So you've got to imagine it's 1973, you know, the stuff that's in the top 40 and I somehow got the job and the band had a really good singer. The guy really could sing, even though the band was quite awful. And we, we got a lot of work and I started making, a. I started making pretty good money. Like when I was only 17 or 18, I started earning more than my father and It was all like I had a really good run while I was doing that. And then I got kicked out of that band for being an idiot and not wanting, not wanting to do what they wanted to do. I was sort of like, they wanted to become a show band. And what that meant was we all dressed up in these, in these safari suits. (laughs) There was a, there was a show band. There was a show band they really liked. And what each member of the show band had a kind of a personality. There was a kind of a, a dopey one and a funny one and there was one the girls liked and there was a talented <laughs> one. And 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 you sort of have these you sort of have this sort of floor show. It's like the wiggles. Yeah, well <laughs> I was moving in another direction. I was sort of like listening to Hawkwind and Pink Floyd and stuff. them no I was saying, Wow, we should play some Hawkwind and these guys going, I actually talked them into playing Silver Machine. <laughs> <which> is- <laughs> just <laughs> which, which is quite a quite something well done it was on the charts yeah anyway that was the end of that and then i just sort of i just started an endless stream of forming bands to to play my own songs and writing songs and forming bands and meeting people and breaking up and falling apart and eventually i bought a a um a tascam it was a it was a domestic four track tape recorder, and that's where my that's sort of where my musical career really started. When I could start overdubbing with myself, I started learning how to really write some, some sort of interesting songs. And that it had eluded it eluded me up until that point. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't write any songs, and then I realised I needed to be able to sort of sit at home and jam with myself. So after having bought thousands of amps and PAs and cars and microphones and bit thousands of bands and all of this sort of stuff in 1980, finally the church rolled off the, I don't know, whatever it is, the conveyor yeah. belt. After 10 years of all this stuff, I finally put the church together. And, and And in 1980, there was the pub rock explosion in Sydney, which took us with it, I suppose. And, and, before you know it, I was, I was one of those fixtures playing every night in Sydney on the pub rock circuit.
0: And, of course, the church original lineup with yourself, Peter Carpenter's uh, Nick Ward and, and Marty Wilson Piper in 1981. Yeah. You had a hit.
1: We had a hit single. We, we got signed to EMI and Northern Songs. Miraculously enough, like really miraculously, when you think about it, someone talked Bob Quim out. In the mixing our song unguarded moment it was a hit in Australia we're on this big TV show yeah. and it was a hit and that was it never looked back um, and then uh, it was a hit in Sweden was a hit in Canada was not a hit in England but it got played on a TV show um, old gray whistle test they played some of it enough to sure. kind of get some interest going so we sort of had we had a bit of interest going all around the world from people who saw our video and saw us all standing there in our Paisley guitars playing Rickenbackers and stuff.
0: But how wonderful to have uh, have a hit at such, a, at such an early stage in your career. And I know that through the 80s, you kept recording, you kept making albums. And I told you when I met you a couple of years ago that I lived in Brisbane from 1982 through 1988, and uh, I remember seeing the church perform in a a long-gone venue called the Hacienda in the uh, Fortitude Valley. It was like the dangerous part of town at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's all cleaned up now, I think. But uh, And I remember the show vividly because everyone, I think, in the audience as well as on the stage was clearly high.
1: There was a lot of that in those days, (laughs) a lot of um,
0: being high.
1: I still am. I still get high every show I play. I can't imagine I ever won't. In 1988,
0: which was the year I left for, for the States, you released Starfish, the album you alluded to a little bit earlier on, uh, which included the song Under the Milky Way, the, a song that is still still heard around the world on television and in movies. Uh, it keeps on taking on another another life, doesn't it? It brought you international success.
1: Yep, yeah, it did. Um, it's still going. It's still out there. Um, it's amazing It is sometimes amazing, you know, like something that took you like five minutes to do a long, long time ago. And it's still, I I remember a friend of mine said, you make money even when you're asleep. I thought about that. And I thought, yeah, there are some people, you know, they've got to be awake and they've got to be standing there actually doing their job. But um, because of that song and songs like that, sometimes when I'm asleep. Someone across the other side of the world buys my record and bingo, a cent lands in my bank account.
0: I, I think it's difficult for, for many people to look back and perhaps see who they were 30 or 40 years ago. Can you, can you see yourself back then? How did that success impact you?
1: I was a rat bag. I don't like, I didn't, look, I, I have never liked myself. I didn't like myself when I was born. I didn't like myself when I was a kid. I didn't like myself as a young man. Now looking back as an old man on that young man, I really don't like that guy much at all. He was a real, I don't know, just what's the word I'm looking for? He was a churlish guy. No gratitude. I don't know. It just, things could have been so much easier. I could have been more pleasant to people. Um, I thought I had some weird idea you were supposed to be cold and rude. And I thought that was the way to do it. And. When we first started going in radio stations in Australia, there was a lot of this matiness. And I really reacted badly against ah mate, now are you?" And I was like, I turned into this other like yeah, like frosty, cold, I'm not your mate. Don't talk to me like that. I just mm. wish I'd taken been like Buddha and sort of taken the middle path. You know, I I couldn't be I couldn't do all that matey-matey business, but I didn't have to go the other way and be quite so frosty and rude. Yeah. I could have just been a bit little bit more like, oh, yeah, hey, how are you going? You know, like like I would be now. You know, if you sit down in a plane and the guy next to you, hey, mate, how are you? Great to see you. You know, you don't go, hmm, yes. You know, you go, oh, hello, yeah, I'm Steve. I didn't know all that. I don't know what was wrong with me. I didn't, I sort of, I had concentrated so much on playing the fucking bass and singing lyrics I didn't know how to talk to people or I didn't know how to handle the other guys in the band and I was rude to them and they were rude to me and they were rude to each other and we just went round the world being rude to each other and rude to everyone we met I regret that I don't know what was wrong with me uh, and now look I walk down the road now and someone comes up and says Steve I've, I've got your album I hope you don't mind me annoying you like I'm like, why would I mind? It's like it's marvelous thing that you like my record, and I'm I'm happy to sign it. And like, what do you do for a living? And where do you live? And once upon a time, you know, I was, but someone come up and say, "Hey, I've got your record. Could you sign it?" I'd be really, I could be really. I don't know why. I I don't understand that person at all. Um, Can I explain a few mitigating circumstances, please? First of all. I'm now a father five times over, so I've got five daughters. I also went through 10 years of heroin addiction, which being a heroin addict took away any ideas that I had that I was I was some kind of prince of this world. And it sort of relieved me of all that damn money I had to make uh, and sort of um, it put me out there on the streets, like, you know, like doing it hard. Being a, being a junkie, and you know the people I had to meet and run with, and uh, things I had to do to get the money, and you know, like sitting in a sitting between the floors in a car park. I went and lived in Sweden, and and my friends, my dealers, they lived in this bit of, they lived in this like three foot between these two between these two floors of a car park, and you sort of rolled in this in this area that was three foot high and there were three Swedish junkies that lived in there and sold heroin. And I'd be sitting in there, you know, sitting in there, sort of shooting up heroin, thinking, well, life's good, isn't it? You know, I'm here with my friends in this <laughs> nice car park, having a nice fix and, you know, things are pretty good. Um, anyway, so after, after living that life, living that, going to Sweden, being a junkie there and then having all these children now being a grandfather, I sort of, you know, I sort of see things differently. But um, for a while there, God knows what I was thinking. Like, just like every young man, you think, you think you're going to be young and uh, rich and attractive and sort of in demand forever. And it, it isn't like that. It's funny. It's funny. It's amusing. It's funny just to see life have its way with people. I look back. I, sometimes I weep. I go, I had all this shit. Now I don't have anything. I had a house. I had sports cars and instruments. And a, I had a recording studio. I don't have any of that now. I, I just rent a flat. Um, so, so heroin took everything I had away. But it also took away my terrible hubris and arrogance. So I guess it was worth it in the end. Otherwise, I wasn't, I wasn't sort of going anywhere as a person. I wasn't, I wasn't learning any, anything about being a human being at all. And, um, suddenly being a junkie, you sort learn to, you learn about the, how the other half lives
0: and it ain't pretty. How did you make it through the other side? How did you get out? Because most people don't.
1: Look, I, I say this, it sounds terrible, but it's the truth by the grace of God. I really, I really feel like the universe is watching. The universe is going, gee, this is Steve Kilby, he's had a lot of good breaks. Like, he's running around. He's, you know, he's making some money. He's playing his music and he's meeting girls. And he's not being very appreciative though. And we should give him heroin for ten years. Let's see how he is at the end of that. They roll heroin into your lap, and then ten years later, you're like, oh, I'll let, okay, okay. I'll, I've learned my lesson. And, and the universe sort of went, he learned his lesson, let him out. And and, and then I, I popped back up and I've kind of, I've learned some humility and some appreciation. And when I walk down the street and I see a guy sitting there in the gutter with, with a can of methylated spirits or whatever the fuck it is, or walking down the street, yes, in San Francisco, there's guys smoking shit they're smoking ice and heroin and shit on the street. And I'm looking at guys sitting in doorways with their fucking, their bit of foil on their. And I'm like, once upon a time, I would have been, oh, that's disgusting behavior. What's going on here? Nowadays, I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I can't do anything for them. But I wish I could. I wish I could. I, I wish I could take all that pain away. I walk along the street. I see all the drunks. And I've got to tell you this, when I was in Sweden where it got really serious, every one of my friends who was a heroin addict was a heroin addict for a reason because they had been betrayed by society when they were children and they'd been raped, they'd been in wars, they'd been sold, they'd been beaten, they'd been sent away. All of the people I knew that were junkies were were using it to forget this terrible life. And I, I just think, there's just so much fucking pain in this world, and and we brutalise people, and then they find this
0: wonderful stuff, heroin. A, a, a hugely important part of your story, obviously.
1: I hate to trivialise this stuff by like you know some musician going, oh, I think this and I think that, but um yeah I, I I tell you what, I'm not looking forward to I'm going out for a walk in a minute, but um I walk along and I see it and I feel it hurts. It's hard to look at, seriously.
0: Well, it it, it it should hurt. I mean, if you're connected to your fellow human, it should hurt. I want to get to these music questions that I've got for you, but but I do want to just sort of finish up on this. There's a thread of spiritual exploration uh, that it seems has been a constant in your writing, in your lyrics, uh, Eastern culture in particular. Yeah. Can you describe that journey, um, the effect that it's had on you as, uh, as, um, as a man and, and as a musician? I mean, obviously you just shared some of the dark stuff. What about some of the good stuff?
1: This might seem like a contradiction. I was a junkie, but I was an avid. I was avidly reading, devouring Hindu literature. And I was, I was st- still being a junkie, but I was, I was devouring the, the Bhagavad Gita. And oh, there's, there's, there's many, many, many works. The Bhagavad Gita is the most famous. There's the Mahabharata there are there are many works i was reading them all i was devouring them and then i had i had a wonderful experience i was in rehab in la um get trying to get off heroin i was trying to get clean and i was in i was in agony and one day i i heard it said that god would not give people more than they could handle and um i got down on my knees and said hey god i i i've reached that point like i don't i can't I can't handle one second, one second more of this. It it happened. Um, This wonderful thing happened. I was allowed to lie down and have a rest, which I hadn't done. I hadn't slept for about six weeks because I was a junkie and I couldn't sleep. I lay down. I had a lucid dream. Um, In my lucid dream, I was hanging out with Krishna and um, we were just sort of like standing there by the side of a lake in India and, talking like we're old friends and it was the most marvelous experience I've ever had. I've never had it again. I've chanted, i prayed, I've never had it again. I've, I've never, never ever had another spiritual experience. That's the only one I had after all that. But I think it was because if you're sitting around, you go, hey, God, hey, man, where are you? Like, hey, uh, show yourself. He's not, he's not going to come. If you get down on your knees and you scream and you go, it's like your parents, my children are in another room going, dad, 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 I'm not going to go in there. So look, look after yourselves. If somebody starts screaming, I'm going to be running in there. I found that to be how it was for me when I got down on my knees, actually on my face, like lying down with my face on this floor of this, like a room where I was doing rehab and put my face on the floor and went, God, I have fucked my life, please, please, please. Like, I can't, there's nowhere left to go but you. Then he was there. But I've never been able to manifest that ever since. That sincere, like, now I'd love to see God, but I can't manifest, like, I'm sitting in a room in San Francisco and, you know what I mean? It's like, here, he's not going to come here. Like, I don't really need him, but I, I another time on a plane, I was on a plane and it looked like the plane was going to crash and an engine had blown up. And I, this, uh, I started praying and I was starting to get it again as well. Luckily the plane, obviously the plane didn't crash. I'm amazed Mm -hmm. that the, the plane recovered and we somehow landed, but I found I started praying and I felt like great comfort again. Like um, it's really strange. It's, if you really need it, it seems to be there, but it's not. It's not there. It's not there for trivial shit. You know, it's not like, hey, I'm playing cards. God, can't you help me? Give me a hand. Doesn't. <laughs> it's not going to work like that. Not for me anyway.
0: Let's let's talk about music. What is your first musical memory?
1: Um, we were very very poor. My dad only had really one record, and it was a really good record. And he, he had a little record player. He had a record by Frank Sinatra called Only the Lonely. And uh, on this record, someone had, I, I realized now, obviously when I, w- I was four, so I didn't realize all this, someone had handpicked Frank Sinatra, the best fucking torch ballads that had ever been written, songs about love and loss. And they'd given him Nelson Riddle, who was the greatest orchestrator and arranger in the world. And they'd said, go in there, Frankie, and do your thing. And he, um, he, he sang conversationally. He sang like he was in the room with you, you know, like it wasn't this, it wasn't this sort of big operatic thing. And I think he might've been, I think he might've been one of the first guys. And he sang the, he, he sang the song so thoughtfully. I could feel you know he like when he meets a girl on the street, he hasn't seen her for a while, and she stops to say hello, and he realizes she's moved on. But and all the instruments, as, he, as, he's, as each misadventure in love, as each thing happens, all of the instruments are sort of in, uh, illustrating that. like if the stars come out, you know, you hear it, you hear the little twinkle of the stars, and when the willow is weeping. You know there's some lugubrious oboe moaning away, you know what I mean it's like it was just like a beautiful record of songs of love lost of torch ballads sung by the best singer in the world, some of the best songs ever written it sort of it sort of rushed into my empty head and gave me an idea of this is what music can be like and it made me think about this idea of why, when I sing about how I've lost my girl, how does that make you happy? And I sat there thinking, well, I've just heard Frank's lost his girlfriend, um, and yet I feel sort of happy by listening to that. Not not happy because he's lost his girlfriend, but somehow, him telling the tale has given me some sort of strength or a sense of triumph or something. So uh, there, were, there were all these contradictions to wrestle with for the rest of my life. A, a torch song, a ballad, I'll love you forever. We'll probably never meet again, but I'll always love you. You'll go on forever, my heart will go on. Why does that make you happy? Why does that make someone else happy? When I stand on stage and sing this song, this woman's led me, I'm never gonna see her again. She's broken my heart. And the whole audience is going, wow. That's that's a strange contradiction that I still haven't quite figured out.
0: I think it's in what you said. It's, it's, it's almost like a conversation. It's the phrasing. It's the way he tells the story. Yeah. What was the first music you bought with your own money?
1: With my own record, I sent my dad out. My dad said, son, I've got a dollar's pocket money for you. I said, dad, on your way home, can you buy me a single? He said, yes, I will. I say I want the Rolling Stones under the ball book back with Walking the Dog, which I realize now, oh, I realize now could have been a drug song. <laughs> She's got the needles, but she can't sew. I, and that just went past me when I was 10. But now thinking about it, I was going, what was she doing with those needles if she couldn't sew? Uh, so it was, it was a, such a strange song. The, the Rolling Stones doing Under the Boardwalk. It seems so romantic to me. Uh, I mean, I thought of Mick Jagger. I didn't even know what a boardwalk was. There were no boardwalks in my fucking town, that's for sure. I had no idea that that wasn't even a Rolling Stone song. Um, I had no I had no clues, I knew nothing about it. However, my father brought that home and I must have played it 9,000 times. Even when they would come in and go, turn the record player off now, I would lie in bed just making it go round like that. Listening to it because you could still hear the music coming off the. So I told do a manual job as my single went round and round. And then with that, I discovered the joys of oh, now I have one single, I want another single. And then I discovered the joys of having a whole bunch of singles. And right. And then till one day when I was 16, I met a guy at a party and he was saying, What are you listening to, man? And I was going, Oh, this and this and this. Goes, what the fuck are you listening to? Aren't you listening to albums? I'm going, no, I'm, I'm listening to singles. And he's going, oh. And he was like, oh, go away. Come back. And I'm like, what, what should I? And he's going, man. And then he showed, he taught me in one, he gave me a crash course in about an hour how a modern chap should be listening to albums. Don't listen to singles, Stephen. Listener albums and then he told me all the albums I should be listening to all these albums I should be I should have jumped into so there I was and then next thing I knew I'd left these terrible singles behind and was buying albums which was sort of like involved a lot of asking for my father but I bought you an album last week yeah but I need another now yeah but you had one last week can't you listen to that yeah but I'm dad oh uh, you know we all have this conversation dad but i need to like, it's another right. one i need to get now right so yeah
0: it's when you sort of start to feel sophisticated as a teen um when you move from that weekly pocket money dollar pound whatever it is single to actually getting albums it's 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 a transitionary period really isn't it
1: totally um and then and then of course i discovered the more my dad hated something that's it and when you go i He go, I fucking hate this. What the fuck is this? And I go, oh yeah, it's great, isn't it? I love this. Um, so I saw, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the divide where he couldn't understand. Suddenly, he couldn't understand the, the shit I was listening to.
0: Right, right, and yeah. What was the first concert you went to without parents, without adult supervision?
1: It's really hard to say. That one I was telling you about. That was really the first one. Um. Then it was kind of mainly school socials where there was a band, a local band playing the hits of the day. I used to go and see Australian bands a lot. I never had a a really big revelation going and seeing other bands. I think I'd be sitting here going, I saw these and these. these." I saw T-Rex and they were fucking awful. They came to Sydney. I was really disappointed by that. They came to Sydney right at the end of their career. And they were awful. I saw David Bowie. He was fucking awful as well. And you're not supposed to say that. Um, I saw the Glass Spider tour. And it was just bloody awful. I saw Roxy Music. They weren't very good either as well once. I don't know. It, it, I saw Bob Dylan. He was fucking awful. Um, I don't know.
0: Let's talk about dancing. Do you like dancing? What, what, what do you listen to when you want to dance?
1: I only dance as a joke. Um, I've, I've got this little dance I do that makes my daughters laugh, which is actually in the imitation of my dad. Once upon a time, my parents had a party, and my dad was doing this dance, and I managed to imitate it. Now I I whip that one out and makes my kids laugh when I do when I do my dad dance. Um, but I'm not really much of a dancer. Um, it's getting really hard to exercise. If if I put on some good dance music, I can work it all off dancing, but I. I haven't really yet put this pra- into practice, so um I'll let you know I'll let you know when I discover some good dance music
0: for sure what what do you listen to when you're feeling sad now obviously you've had a lot of experience of not feeling too good uh, when you were in your addiction but but what about now if you're if you're feeling sad do you do you dive into it or do you listen to music that'll take you out of it I'm going to give you
1: the most unsatisfactory answer and if I was a fan of mine and I was hearing this I'd probably throw my mobile phone at the wall when I hear this when I listen to any music obviously now iTunes has been keeping track of me for a long long time so iTunes knows what I like so when I want to hear music I just put on an iPhone shuffle and they find all my favorite songs and they play them all back to me it's not very glamorous it's not very groovy or anything but it's very effective So I know I'll I'll just put on this thing, Steve's radio and it'll, it'll play me the songs I've been listening to for the last 20 years, all the ones I've, I've been looking for. And that would be like, that would be a wonderful mixture of like Bowie and the Supremes and the Beatles and Dylan and odd, strange singles that I'd like and all kinds of things. But I, unfortunately I don't have a. I, I have found this whole mobile phone thing's made me very, very lazy. And it just seems so easy to put it on the shuffle and then it's going to go back and find stuff that I'd forgotten that I even like. And, and you know, might play me P.F. Sloan doing um, The Eve of Destruction. You know what I mean? Like just out of the blue, some some great thing will, will come out of it. Um So that's a very disappointing answer, I know. I should be going, well, I go to my vinyl, which I listen to with my rah, 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 but I don't. I'm just listening to shit off my phone.
0: If you could only hear one song, and I know it's a terrible thing to think of, but if you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: I'm probably going to have to say Strawberry Fields forever. Uh, It'd be pretty hard just listening to that one forever, but I think that's... I think that's my favorite song ever written. And I think it does everything I think a song should do. And it would probably have to be that one.
0: I think it it was also the first double A-side single ever released with Penny Lane on the other side.
1: It was. It was. I'll tell you what, in my town, they played Penny Lane a lot more than they played fucking Strawberry Fields forever. And it was also the point um, my dad and I used to drive along in the car. We used to go for lots of drives together. He'd go, come on, let's go for a drive. we go for a drive and put the radio on. Uh, Monday in 1966, we are driving along. The, here's the Beatles' new single. And they played Strawberry Fields Forever. And I was like, and my dad said, I don't think I'm going to like the Beatles if they're going to do something like that from now on. And I was I was the opposite. I was like, wow, that that just sort of, I don't know it was uh, hearing it uh, like, okay, it's one thing to hear it now, obviously you put strawberry fields forever on a, on a radio show or you play it to someone or whatever, and people go, yeah, 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 in the day in nineteen sixty six in nineteen sixty six you've got to remember what the world was like in nineteen sixty six you're driving along in some old car with your dad and he puts the radio on and fucking strawberry fields for. Were- ever comes on with all that those cellos and all of that weird all that stuff it's like it's like someone's interrupted the the fabric of the space-time continuum (laughs) well they did i say this to my daughters now because my daughters are big beatles fans i go look it's one thing to hear the beatles now but you should have heard it when this shit actually happened when you actually for the first time ever you heard this no one had ever heard it before. It was like, you cannot, you can't overestimate uh, the, the, the contemporaneous feeling of hearing it. I mean, it's still something to behold now, but back in the day, just coming on a radio, driving along in 1966 and there's songs come on. It's like somebody's, you know, things have changed, things change suddenly. Suddenly the, the black and white world was dissolving. And it's incredible to think that just a bunch of musicians in a studio fiddling around with instruments and shit could achieve such a thing. But they did.
0: Do you have, uh, do you have a favorite music video?
1: There was a band called, um, it was just one guy. He was, he, was an, he was an Indian. He was a Sikh. Babylon Zoo. Their second single was really good. I had a really good video. It was called Animal Army. It's just great. It's this guy. You'd think he was going to be the biggest rock star in the world, this Sikh Indian. He just looks incredible. He's dressed up in a silver suit. And there's all this stuff where suddenly the camera zooms right inside his eyes and keeps going through the synapses and keeps traveling into his mind. And inside his mind is a really groovy, beautiful girl. And she's grooving as well. Everything's grooving. It's, <laughs> it's one of those. It's the sort of video I could never have afforded. I never I never would have been able to have a video like that. But um anyway, Animal Army by Babylon Zoo. check it out. Uh he's that guy should have been massive.
0: That that kind of links into one of my one of my other questions. We're just down to the last two or three here. Okay. And if you want to, if you want to use that answer to, to satisfy this one, please feel free. The question is, what band or artist do you love but feel that Perhaps they never got the big break they deserved. Oh, there's so many. There's a band in England called
1: Bebop Deluxe. Yeah. There was a band in England called Metro that wrote Criminal World for David Bowie. Things that come out at the wrong time. They, they come out in the wrong period and some other movements come along. I love Jabriah. He was like a Texas Tex, Texan version of David Bowie. Um, I like The Doctors of Madness. Um, They're an English band. They never
0: really got anywhere.
1: Yeah, those ones will do. Yeah. Especially Bebop Deluxe. I heard he never even fucking got paid.
0: What was his name? The last name was Nelson. Bill right? Nelson. Bill Nelson, right. Yeah. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? It doesn't have to be necessarily a new band, but something that's new to you. Um, how disappointing that I don't. Fair enough. It's all right. I'm not disappointed. Okay. All right. <laughs> Do you have a musical guilty pleasure or perhaps uh, put another way, a band or an artist that you like that perhaps your fans would be surprised?
1: I, they may not be surprised. I really like um, I really like some girly groups from the 90s, early 60s like and then he kissed me and leader of the pack and looking in the rain with the one I love. I love the Supremes,
0: the Chelles,
1: the Chelles, all of that. Yeah. I I, yeah, I really like that stuff. That that makes the teenage my teenage heart throb when I hear about stuff. Still,
0: and our last question is: How are you feeling right now?
1: Mediocre. Um, sort of like I've had too much coffee. I haven't had any breakfast, and the so weather outside. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to go out and pound the pavements, which I don't really want to do, just to stay fit. So, and I'm not really on call for about another four or five hours. So I just feel like, you know, like nothing much to do. The beauty of, of being on the road. It's like Charlie Watts said, he said, I've been in this band 60 years, 55 of those years were waiting around. It's exactly how it is.
0: Steve Kilby, thank you so much for taking a minute to talk to me. I appreciate you.
1: Thank you so much, mate. Bye.
0: Cheers. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.